Hello and welcome to the Noisy Hadjup podcast. This is episode three. Thank you for listening. What's been going on this week before we get into the main bulk of the chat, which is between me and my friend Amanda all about polyamory. So that's an interview I'll share with you in just a moment. Um, my week, what's been going on? Like, you know, um, you know how they say about living your life there's a, like a certain percentage that they bullshit about or that I've seen on TikTok or something about how some should be in comfort and you should always have a certain percentage in discomfort. I don't know what that percentage is, but I definitely did a few things that were, yeah, uncomfortable this week or new. And so that feels quite good to have done those. Uh, the first was a comedy night I put on in Woking at a wine bar and that went really, really well, I think. Um, well, everyone else was brilliant. I... I wasn't as good as I could have been. I was just emceeing, so I was only hosting. But because I've also like been planning the night and dealing with the tickets and website and money and booking and everything, I sort of told myself to take it easy. So I was like, all you have to do is relax. Don't worry about being funny. I won't make any jokes. I'll just sort of chat to people casually and introduce the acts. And that was that was what I told myself to do. Unfortunately, because I've been trialing this um, ADHD medication and... Well, another another story is that uh, rather than taking it the whole month, I'm only going to take it for half the month, just at a low dosage so that it helps with my PMDD, which is called premenstrual, uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is not fun. It's quite depressing, depression based and all that sort of thing. But I've noticed that the ADHD medication really helps get rid of that for half the month. So that is good. Anyway, I took 20 milligrams of this in the morning and it should have kind of worn off by the evening, but I sort of forgotten I'd taken it. And I had a tiny bit of red wine and yeah, just my heart rate went crazy. And I, within 30 seconds of picking up the mic, I just wanted the ground to swallow me. I don't know why I was so flustered. Like I had a list of things I was going to say just about introducing the night and getting to know people and asking them proper questions. And I just, yeah, my brain was not working. So it got better. It got better after Farah, um, Farah Sharp, she was the first um, act on and she basically I think warmed people up so that was really good um, so yeah and then I was then I was all right but yeah it was one of those nights where like oh my god what am I doing so that was uncomfortable but I realized actually afterwards that it went the way it should have gone like you're meant to do things that make you go Arr! and it's part of the process and I just have to remember that I think because I was um a lot of my childhood upbringing and internal voices. Oh, well, if you're not good at it, then you're just terrible. And um, if you're not good at something first time or if you have a bad day, like I, and I know we do all do this, like you beat yourself up and you question what you're doing and why. Um, but at least now at this ripe old age of 36, I kind of have this real knowledge that that is part of the process. Like it is fine. So even though I'm feeling, I was feeling sort of quite shit and annoyed at myself, the next day I was still able to have that extra lens on myself being like that's cool it is just you're meant to feel like this at some points and it's part of the process it doesn't matter it doesn't mean anything you'll learn from it and I think with performance you just feel so embarrassed especially in front of other comedians like oh my god they'll never like recommend me for anything and it's just the embarrassment of being shit in front of good people but it was all right and yeah it was overall a successful night and we've got another great one booked next month got a really really good headline act uh, called Tom Horton and uh, Darius Davis will be performing as well so yeah should be should be good so that was the first thing I did which was kind of uncomfortable and then the second thing I did was my first night at Vauxhall Comedy Club did that on Wednesday night and that was I did a seven minute um spot and I thought it went really well you know I was really happy with it I sort of had a little bit of a you know I just sort of forgot where I was a little bit early on but I know that's totally normal and as long as you sort of stay relaxed with the audience you're okay um I was happy with the amount of laughs I got uh so yeah although I did they did say afterwards that the crowd was quite cold and I was like oh I thought I thought it was all right so I was like shit does that mean people don't think I did well but again, it's one of these things where remembering that when you come off stage, you feel vulnerable. So whatever anyone says to you, unless they are like throwing praise at you, you'll think they think you're shit. <laughs> um, and even when someone, you know, someone did say great set and then, but if the other person sort of gives you a nice smile, it's like, oh yeah, well done. And you're reading into that. You just think, oh, did that person say I was good just to be kind? Was that because I was shit? Like it is amazing how... 
deep into someone's compliments or responses you can go to justify your own fears about yourself. And I do that a lot. Um, I'm trying to get better at it and I'm trying to, I go in phases, you know, there's phases in my life where I'm very, very resilient and like Teflon um, about what people think about me. And I, I do just, yeah, I think it's been a common theme in a lot of conversations I've had lately, which is stop asking, like stop justifying why you are where you are and just be like, it's enough that I want to do this. So it's enough that I want to do this and you know, sucks to be you if you're in the audience, you don't like it. You know, I think that's kind of how you, how you have to view it to a degree. So yeah, I'd say that's probably the main two challenges or highlights of my week, which have been pretty good things, I suppose, you know, good, good to do new things and to push yourself. So other than that, lots and lots of work to do and a lot of sleep to get. I've not been sleeping particularly well and I have not been out of the house enough other than like to go places in the evening but I, it's raining. So will I go to the gym? Probably not. Maybe, you know, maybe I will. We'll see. Either the gym or sleep. But let's crack on with the, with the interview. So my friend, Amanda Keeling, I've known her since I was 18. We met at university at the end of the first year. And we have always been two chatterboxes together, dissecting every single topic, every which way. And she is brilliant to really dig deep into subjects with. Now, we're going to talk all about polyamory. Amanda's been polyamorous for about three or four years. And I thought it'd be really good and interesting to record this conversation, asking her about how she sort of dipped her toes in the water into that lifestyle, uh, talking about relationship conventions. And we also get into some stuff like about mother issues and parents and therapy, lots and lots of things to go over. It was a really, really fascinating chat, not just from the perspective of understanding um, non-monogamous relationships and polyamory, but also in how these conversations can hold up a mirror to yourself and all the relationships you have in your life, whether friendships or otherwise, especially when it comes to that balance between honesty and managing your emotions, uh, which I always find really fascinating and a very tricky balance. I'm very honest in relationships, but I have been known to drag people through every single high and low uh, that I might be feeling or thinking whether or not it contradicts itself one day to the next. So it was really interesting to me. I really hope you enjoy it. Next week, I'm chatting to Jess in Piazzi all about grief and dealing with complicated relationships with parents. So if uh, that's something you can relate to, it's definitely worth listening to. Her Amazon Prime series is out in a few days. It's called Keep Calm and Carry On. So why not catch that in the meantime? But for now, here's me chatting to Amanda Keeling. Enjoy. I have known you since university, since we're end of the first year. So that's 18 years <laughs> 18 years fuck um 18 years and throughout most of our friendship you have been in a long-term relationship and then uh, that ended a few years ago and you are now in a few polyamorous relationships it's sort of funny because you've you know long straight relationship for many many years but actually how you view the world that wasn't really reflective of that and you seem very very I don't, I don't know if like happy is the word because I don't think anyone's ever like happy um in that way but you seem more comfortable with polyamory as a sort of lifestyle for you tell me about the seeds of polyamory and how you opened yourself up to that in your life what what happened yeah, it's interesting because I was actually having this conversation a few weeks ago trying to remember the first time I heard the word because I definitely was like familiar with the concept of like open relationships and also familiar with the idea of like polygamy, which is really different and people get them confused. But the idea of like one man having multiple wives, people think of Mormons. Muslims, as I was raised with. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I think, I think that's people's, people go to that less in their head. Um, I don't know if it's because of like fear of being accused of being racist or if it's just because it's something that's not like culturally, you know, there's loads of documentaries about Mormons. Yeah. Kind of sensationalist reality TV type vibe. Um, so yeah. And I, so I, I don't know when I sort of became aware of what polyamory was specifically, like if I actually, knew what it was or had heard the word or both of those things actually because it is 
it is distinct and maybe it's helpful to define define what that word means um before we go on because i think i mean it itself is an interesting thing because so as a word it's existed i think for maybe like 30 years like 1992 i think is the first like recorded use of it and it's i mean it's a linguistic like mashup so it's both latin and greek in its roots so poly um being greek for many and amory with the latin root amor for loves and so the idea is like many loves and ha- being able to have like multiple relationships and there are some people who are very hardcore about that's what polyamory is it's about it's not about sleeping around loads it's like there's a quite a famous podcast whose tagline is like it's not all about sex um because that's inevitably what people want to talk to you about and want to ask you about and also why lots of people get into it so there's like a group of people who are kind of gatekeepery about what that word means but i think increasingly it's being used by people in a much more expansive way particularly like our gener- you know people in their 30s but also i think gen z um i think it's starting to become like a more generalized word for what like gatekeepery polyamorous would call ethical non-monogamy as like an umbrella term but yeah lots of poly people that i know anyway may have like multiple serious relationships but may also you know um, have a lot of casual sex or attend sex parties or and i think for me what's important about defining yourself as polyamorous is not necessarily that you have to have multiple serious relationships but there's the possibility of it so there's no there's no like boundaries on if you start seeing someone quite casually there's no boundary on that becoming emotional and that was always the distinction between polyamory and swinging for example like swingers it tends to be quite heteronormative it tends to be about protecting primary relationship and not having you know you can have sex but you can't get emotionally involved like it's fine as long as you don't love each other <laughs> because we're not having sex so someone might as well <laughs> <laughs> i mean for lots of swingers it's about having sex together so they they go to a swingers party and they will play with someone as a couple and that's about protecting the relationship as well um and and so there are distinctions you know that there with polyamory which is much more about dating separately and i mean there's all kinds of stuff that we could talk about about unicorn hunting and the problems of couples dating together as a couple but yeah so i think wow. for me that's how i'm gonna sit and just learn everything about these terms <laughs> i actually did do some revision of this i was thinking about like what we were going to talk about yeah so i think for me like the way i would define it is you know i have at the moment i have two partners um one of which is quite long term we've been together i mean actually he's he's the the explanation the actual answer to the question you asked me which i will come to i promise don't interview people with adhd hubs this is what happens you know i i'm adhd do you know how hard it is for me to just sit and listen <laughs> i mean i've already interrupted you way more than i wanted to <laughs> oh i mean it's, it's not bad but yeah so you know, we started dating very early on um sort of in october 2019 and then i've been seeing someone else much more recently since march but you know it feels quite stable feels like it has some legs and i recently ended a relationship with someone that had been going on since january and but i've just i also have started sort of seeing someone else in a very casual but quite intense kind of way that i would describe as a partner and we have both agreed that we don't have space for another relationship but we would like to explore this connection because it's quite intense and that doesn't happen for me very often to like really feel this level of intensity like it's been it's been a lot actually to like we can talk about how you deal with that when you have other partners because i think when you're monogamous you know you can really throw yourself in into that like overwhelming like oh my god everything about this person's amazing um and people neglect their friends and kind of forget about life and you you can't really do that yeah so that's that's for me how i would just des- des- define polyamory it doesn't have to be you know very like lot they can be casual but it's the possibility it's the freedom for something to become more serious if you want to is is a very is the shorter version of what was a very long-winded explanation no i like that well also there's um even that whole idea of the freedom too is so important there's a woman I follow called Tracy McMillan. I think I've shown you some of her Instagram yeah. sometimes. She talks about relationships and everything. And um, knowing that sometimes when you release that pressure from any relationship, you know, monogamous or otherwise, 
um, you can be like, oh, I am free to do anything. And then that just that mindset takes the pressure off it anyway. So it's quite an important thing. But yeah, I get that's been the thing of polyamory. For you, though, how did it feel that first step into it? Like that sort of, is this okay? I mean, I know that the, the first person you saw was in a, they were poly anyway. So yeah. I guess that was, it wasn't like, so some people introduce it to a monogamous relationship, don't they? Which is a whole other kettle of fish. Yeah. What was that first step though for you when you were like oh I'm I'm gonna start dating or being in relationships with more than one person how did it feel yeah I mean I think it's interesting because I yeah I mean so to answer both this question and your original question um I think it was accidental like I don't know that I I don't know that I really had a plan I mean it was I've always been I've always been a little bit skeptical of monogamy in the traditional sense of like lifelong marriage like I was never particularly interested in getting married because I thought it was disingenuous to promise to be with someone forever when it's very obvious that that just doesn't happen a lot of the time. And I think that's okay. Like, I think it's okay to, to agree that relationships won't last forever, but I don't particularly understand the point in the context of us all knowing that, that we still kind of yeah. play this game. So I was never particularly interested in that. And I think I always had a fairly like my attitude to infidelity as well was very much of if something happens if you mess up so me and and the partner that you referred to we were together for you know 13 years we met while I was still at university and um for a lot of that relationship we lived apart and um, he lived in London and I lived you know kind of all over the place while I was um being a research assistant and doing a PhD and you know I had always kind of said like I, do, I don't really want to know like, I just, it, you know, I don't want you to tell me, you know, because I think that's just you dealing with your own guilt. Like, I remember you telling me that. I remember I, and I think you either told me on the phone, but I remember where I was when either I was remembering that you had told me this or when we were walking. We were in Spitalfield Square. And, and I don't know whether either that thought, like we'd had the conversation or the phone call, but I, I always remember saying, like, if it happens once, don't tell me, don't let burden me with your guilt. But if it happens regularly, then I want to know, because that's kind of who, who you are. Yeah, I don't want to be taken for an idiot. You know, something going on behind my back for years and years. And, you know, that's different. Like, a sustained affair is, is different to cheating, I think, and or like a one-off. But, yeah, I think I always just, you know, for me, the question was always, like, is our relationship good or not? And, and I mean, we can talk about the fact that I'm not sure I was always really that good at knowing that eventually. Like, I think it's very difficult when you get, I think you and I have some similar experiences with this. Like, you get into a relationship so young when, you know, I was really only just figuring out, like, who I was and what I wanted. And do sometimes feel like it got cut off a little bit, like stifled that exploration. And so... Yeah, so I have a, a very close friend. He's probably like one of my closest friends, really, for lots of reasons that will become obvious as I tell this story. But um, who was or is in what is now a polyamorous relationship hasn't always been. It's been other forms of non-monogamous, but never, never really monogamous for the duration of their relationship. I think they've had periods of where they've been maybe functionally monogamous for, for various reasons, but mm -hmm. they've always had some level of, of openness to their relationship and that was very deliberate. And so I think I was always interested in that and often like asked questions about how it worked and particularly in later years as we got to know each other better, I got to know his partner a little bit as well. Um, and yeah, I think I did the thing that everyone does, which is you talk about it, you go, oh, that's it, I can never do that. And, and Sarah was often... Um, I'm not asking you to, like, why are you saying that? And it's an interesting response because so many people say it. And I think I'm a little bit more generous with it because I, because it's in my more recent past. And I think what people are doing when you, they say that is they're sort of trying to imagine what their life would be like. You know, they're not, they're not, they're not you know, they're sort of like, mm, what would that be like? Or oh, I don't think I could do that. Um, and I think it comes out in a strange way. Yeah, I think that's it. It's people putting themselves in the situation. It's, it's not, um, I don't think it's meant in a kind of, effect, or, but I, it's not in an offensive way. But yeah, I can imagine how annoying it is every time. It's like, yeah, I'm just literally telling you about my life and not, I'm not selling it to you. People don't, really do it for anything. people don't really do it for anything else. You know, that I don't think that, you know, you don't tell someone about your 
I don't know, religious epiphany, and people go, oh, that's interesting, I can do that, though. I mean, maybe they do, actually. Um, you, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe sexuality. I mean, I think people, you know, plenty of guys growing up, like, oh, I could never have sex with a man. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, good, that's because yeah. you're gay. Um, or like, yeah, 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 that's um, true. That was, that, was my man, that was my man voice impression there, by the way. Yeah, it's good, I like it. He's not bad Maybe. God, too many things. <laughs> yeah, ask an ADHD person. You know what? Yeah, sure. Let's try that. So, um, yeah, so I think I was I was functionally interested in it. And, and then I think alongside that, there had been points in my relationship with my ex where I had wanted to explore some level of openness. Um, so I think... Like I was always much. I was into. I, I'm. I'm. I'm quite kinky, and hadn't didn't really have the space to explore that in that relationship. And had a friend who went through a phase of just a few years of being in her own words a little bit wild, um, and kind of started going to like things like torture garden and private sex parties and things. And she invited me along once because I expressed it. I was like, that sounds really. You know, I. I really, that's an aspect of myself that I haven't really been able to explore. So, yeah, so she had asked me if I want, you know, we had talked about it, she's like, well, why don't you come? Like, you don't necessarily have to do anything, but you might enjoy being in that space. Or, And I remember talking to my ex about it and him just being like, why would you want to go? That's quite weird. And, sorry, I've just remembered another conversation I had with someone. Go on. Especially around kink, actually, I've often thought this. So do you remember Susan, my housemate? Yeah. Uh, uni. So I remember we were watching Desperate Housewives in like first year. And the storyline was one of the husbands was like really into, I think he had like a kind of humiliation kink. And the wife was like so not into it. And the plot was also, you know, she was very prim and proper. Blah, blah, blah. So he started seeing a dominatrix. And then the, the story obviously is she finds out and she can't believe this. She's very humiliated herself and feels unloved and like she can't give him what he wants and I remember watching that, just being like, I don't get why people are like this. Like, why? It's not something you're interested in. It doesn't mean he loves you any less, but this is something that he can get from someone else. It's like like a hobby. Yeah. It's like like you you want to pick up skating. (laughs) Especially in the context of a professional dominatrix, you know, that's someone providing a service using their skills. Like, it's not a, you know, if we go back to the previous conversation about love and emotions, it's not even, you know, it's not that. Um, but we, we get things tied up with that around sex, I think. But I remember even then just being like, I just don't get it. I don't get why people, why this is a problem. Like, this seems like a sensible solution. So I think that's always been there in my mind. So I had this conversation with my ex about it, like, at one point, and he very much shot me down and was just like, A, he thought the kink was weird. Um, and so that was a bit of me that I didn't explore at all, really, until much more recently. But also, like, the the, the kind of, element of openness sexual op- you know, being the relationship being open um, and less exclusive in that context as well kind of he, he was really not open to that at all so he didn't want to come but he also didn't want me to go on my own and do anything and I just let it go but um I think it had always been there in my mind so when that relationship ended and it ended fairly spectacularly badly and I really didn't want to get into another relationship. Like, I was like, I don't want to be into another relationship, but I'd quite like to date and just explore, you know, a lot of stuff. You know, I'm 34 years old. I've been in the same relationship since I was 21. And there's, I feel like there's a lot of me in here that needs to come out. Yeah. And so at the same time, my my friend who, who I've talked about, we started kind of very casually sleeping together, like in a in a way that probably was maybe potentially a terrible idea but we did talk about it about how it would affect our friendship and but I think because of that I I didn't want him to feel like everything was on him but at the same time I didn't really want to date in a way well I didn't really want to date in a way that was just very casual one night stands I wasn't particularly interested in that I'm never really that interested in in that and I didn't really want to get into anything that looked like it might become a monogamous relationship because I wasn't, I didn't feel like, you know, I'd just come out of this really long relationship. I, I wasn't ready for that. So I kind of, so it had to be someone who was okay with him, with my friend kind of existing because um, I didn't want to end it. I was really enjoying it. It was a really, you know, beautiful thing to explore and like meant a lot to me and, and still does. 
and you know but I so it needed to be someone who was okay with that and I kind of figured like anyone who was monogamous wouldn't be like they would maybe be okay in the very short term and then there would be like a now you have to choose kind of thing well I always think we end long we end long relationships in sort of stages don't we in a way you kind of get that security blanket of a middle ground maybe yeah I think that's that too so I think I I consciously made the decision to date people who were non-monogamous not necessarily doing that as something that I intended to like be the rest of my life but seemed like something that would work for me in that moment of like wanting to explore my own like sexuality in in the sense of my sensuousness and but without it necessarily having the what I understood at the time anyway to be the commitment and you know we can talk about that because I very quickly realized that like it was quite an intense relationship so yeah so I I sort of did online dating and was looking for people who were maybe open to to non-monogamy and and then yeah my my partner kind of I think was the first or one of the first people I matched with certainly one of the first people to message me and definitely the first date I went on and I was like and it was just a really amazing connection like it was just very instant and I remember about like a month in just being like fuck's sake like you know this was meant to be like my hot girl winter I guess because it was going into winter (laughs) and instead like I've ended up with like two you know I don't have space for anything else I now have these two men in my life who are both great I'm really enjoying dating and you know I I don't really I've realized you know quite quickly that like dating takes up a lot of time and I didn't really want to date other people because I wanted to explore these two connections but at the same time felt like you know for goodness sake I've done it again <laughs> like I just ended up yeah. in, in a serious relationship and not kind of explored it so well I like that angle of yeah it's exploring a connection rather than like most people which is I'm dating to find a relationship this is yeah. okay let's there's there's no sort of pressure on it there I mean there's there's definitely still pressure because we just you know our habits are what they are and we're like right this needs to work in the moment if not long term um that freedom to explore a connection that's really interesting I think um it's quite a again it's like a freeing perspective yeah well I mean you you talked about freedom or you paraphrased my 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 discussion about freedom before and I think that's exactly it like it it's a really really freeing thing to realize that you know, I basically haven't had to date ever, actually, like I've seen my single monogamous friends date, where they're, you know, constantly having to like weigh up, is this person, do they tick all my boxes, do they tick enough of my boxes for this to be it now, for the rest of my life, you know, to get married, have kids, and like, that that's hard because people don't tick all our boxes. It's quite interesting that when you talk about sort of barriers to relationships, it's very, now, it's very sort of practical you know, it's based on practical considerations, it's time and, you know, distance and all that kind of thing. Obviously, a lot of the stuff that people will come out with with non-monogamous relationships are the the emotional, it's not, not necessarily the sexual thing. I think sexual, the, the sex side, I think often for people is that it's because we put so much weight on sex in a relationship when actually for the vast majority of people, it is the smallest part of it. How did you navigate that in the, especially in the early stages when it would have been new for you dealing with things like jealousy, like insecurity and, and having real deep connections with a lot of people, which I know I can ask my own question, like with friends, it's, we have deep connections with lots of friends. We manage those, but with that sexual element added on, and especially when you think of your twenties, when we're probably used to dealing with like a lot of insecurities, a lot of all our parental crap that we've thrown onto, you know, a long-term partner. Tell me what was that like? Those first sort of six months to a year. I mean, I can't stay here and say I've never felt jealous. I have done. And we can just, we can talk about that. But in the initial stages, I actually didn't. Mainly because I didn't really have anything to be jealous about. I mean, it's complicated, right? Because, like, we started dating. I started dating both of them, in you know, within a few weeks of each other in October 2019. And then, obviously, we had COVID and didn't see anyone for three months. Like, I was on my own during that first lockdown. Those initial, um, you know, the initial, like, how many months? Like, five months. So my relationship with my friend started off very casual. And I definitely didn't have any real jealousy around his long-term partner. Just because it wasn't a super serious relationship. So I don't think I felt like it became a little bit more serious over time. But in those initial first months, it was very much like, we're really good friends who really enjoy sleeping together. It's just, it's just, you know, it's fun. And then with my other partner, he was 
really intense and really into me to the extent that I felt like I was the one saying, well, don't forget about your other partner. Like, I mean, their relationship is quite different, but I definitely, especially in those early stages, I felt like I, you know, I felt very desired and very, like I didn't have anything to be jealous about. It was more that I was probably projecting actually about how I would feel if I was in her position. Do you ever wonder that polyamory and yeah, non-monogamous relationships are kind of a response to the fact that we're all being let down by people? <laughs> and I wonder when everything becomes a, what am I not giving myself? What, why am I not able to meet my own needs? And um, we end up sort of having to operate just as a single entity. Do you think that's how we should be? Um, or, I mean, obviously it will vary for different people. I'm wondering in, in, to some degree, is this a response to the fact that we get let down so much and so many of us have been let down our whole lives? They were like, right, okay, well, how do I make sure I'm not hurt again? And how much insecurity do we just go, cool, that's normal? Be, I mean, I'm jealous when my boyfriend likes, it, when, he, when he told me he fancied, I, I gave him a free reign to tell me who his ideal woman would be. And it was someone who was not a celebrity enough for me to be like, well, she's not accessible. Um, and she and he said he, she looked like me and I did not think she looked like me and I did not find her attractive. So he is still paying for that two years later. I suppose my response to your story is it's really interesting to me the language that you've used. Well, I mean, why did you ask the question for, for, for first, right? Like often we ask questions like it's a trope right that that you know does my bum look big in this but we ask those questions because we're too scared to ask what we actually want to ask like we we want our partners to say no your bum doesn't look, you look great and and often what that is about is about feeling insecure about our bodies and wanting affirmation but we can't ask for that directly for whatever reason so we do it in this roundabout way why why do you ask the question like what did you think was going to happen and secondly the language that I thought was really interesting was that you said he's still paying for that two years later like why have you created you know I know you're being flippant but it's also an interesting choice of words like why create this point of tension in your relationship when it's probably something from you like why is he being punished for answering a question that you asked him for reasons that like where does that come from and I think well, we can come back to your actual question, but I think so often what polyamory really forces you to do, because you can't get away with this shit when there's multiple people involved. Like, I mean, well, you can, but it ends up in a, I mean, and people are, people do it badly. It's not like people who are polyamorous are more highly evolved. But if you want it to work well, you really have to engage with the fact that multiple people are involved and feelings will happen. And you have to be, able you have to be able to talk about those feelings in a very open and honest way and that's hard and it's a skill that we're not taught and you have to learn I mean some people are better at it than others but like that is fundamentally something you have to accept and I think within monogamy the structures of monogamy are often set up in a way that allows us not to have to do that and it often then deteriorates into things which can be quite controlling passive aggressive or you know unhealthy and I think we see we all know couples who have descended into that um kind of you know unhealthy relationship dynamics because when you're with someone monogamously all the time you I think other relationships like polyamorous relationships your, your partner's other relationships are like a mirror to yourself often and force you to confront the things that within monogamy you can kind of let slide and let slide and let slide until like my own monogamous relationship, it gets to the point where you just can't bear it anymore and everything explodes. You know, I think if I had been polyamorous with my ex, I don't think we would have stayed together for anywhere near as long. It's not all, it's not his fault. Uh, you know, so, you know, he wasn't great to me, but I also wasn't good to him. Like it, the, our relationship together brought out like the worst in each other in many ways. And um, yeah, and I think, so yeah that's and I've, I've not answered your question at all because I went off on a tangent but we can come back to it if you want well, no, well yeah we were well, I think we rely on the structures and I think it's our whole understanding of what relationships are so most people come into a relationship like right you'll never cheat 
you will look after me when I'm sick. You will hopefully, ideally, share the housework. Um, we'll do things together. You actually already have all these things you can do and tick off without necessarily having any deep sort of either emotional um, connection or shared value. I mean, shared values are going to be a big thing. Um, but I think we often just rely on this is what we know to be a relationship. Um uh, to answer your question about the, uh, the, the he's still paying for it. No, that is interesting. To be fair, I think that's because that's just the language you use. And I am a comedian, Amanda, so I'll say the funny things. Um, you know, straight um, monogamous couples, they just like to make the joke about, you know, 20 years together or 30 years together. And we and we laugh about it. And there is a comfort in that. And I do think there's a, um, you know, the sacrifices both both ways you're not and it's interesting that yeah maybe people aren't willing to, because we don't have the language for real emotional bonds and complete honesty and authenticity that we allow each other like you say we allow a lot of things to slide um I would say the reason I asked that question was because I was feeling in a very open place and I think I think it shocked me because asking you all about your stuff but no let's do therapy for me um <laughs> I think it shocked it shocked me because I didn't find her that attractive. She looked like she'd had work done. She, uh, you know, looks very sort of fakey kind of woman. And also she wasn't so massive a celebrity that was like, I was expecting like people that I found beautiful. And I was very secure about that. Anyone I found beautiful, I was like, cool, yeah. And actually there's even some people where I'm like, oh, I think he's got a crush. And I'm totally okay with it because yeah. I can understand it. Yeah, it was interesting and it surprised me. And, and it, looking back, I mean, I was, it was locked down. I was, as you know, extremely insecure and very feeling very, very low. You're having the reverse experience that I had where I was like, oh, I'm nothing like that person. Is that what you really want? Whereas yeah. you're having the, oh, you fancy that person. What does that say about me? Like maybe I'm fancy them. So far more narcissistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, but I think that's a very common thing. Like, that definitely used to happen with my ex. Um, like if I commented on someone, you know, being good looking, he would get super defensive. I'd be like, really? No, they're really ugly. And I don't know exactly what his thought process was, if he felt like he wasn't as attractive as them and found it defensive or, but it was, I thought it was often a very interesting reaction. And at the time I found it extremely frustrating and childish. Yeah, that ego thing, like you say, just confronting yourself constantly. Yeah in a way that, yeah, monogamous, heteronormative sort of lifestyles just protect you from, I think, in a way. And maybe that's why we force people to have them in our society. It's like, right, do this, then you don't have to think too much or challenge yourself or be open. I think it actually is. I mean, I think monogamy, but particularly nuclear families, are all an invention of or a necessity of, of capitalism. Like, they provide stability and and structure and, you know, there's, it's not, it's not a surprise that the Conservative Party and part of Conservative small C Conservative values are to, you know, promote marriage as something that provides stability or they perceive to provide stability to society. I think polyamory is inherently unstable. You know, things change all the time. Like I have had in the last year and a bit, I've had five breakups, some more serious than others. You know, and that's a lot of change and, you know, things that have changed in my life and, you know, some things stay stable and some things shift. But I think in answer to your actual question, I'm going to paraphrase it slightly. It might not be quite what you're asking me, but it's the, it's the question I want. I've forgotten it already. <laughs> so you asked me if, um, if polyamory was about, like, because we feel like we've been let down. And I think that, I think that's often a perception that people who are polyamorous, like, can't commit they're commitment phobic, they're avoidant. And I think there are those people. Um, I don't think there are any, you know, they also exist in monogamy as well. I think there are definitely people who use polyamory to not deal with that stuff about themselves. But I also think it's not inherent to polyamory. Um, you know, I think the idea of commitment in polyamory is interesting, which, which we can talk about. But I think part of it is because it depends how you frame it as well. Like I sort of, someone asked me the other day why I was polyamorous. And I think the answer that people give a lot to that is, you know, the, the kind of like approved message, if you like, from the fictional mm -hmm. polyamory board is that, um, <laughs> that you, you, you know, we put a lot of pressure on our monogamous relationships. You can't possibly get everything you need from one person. So it makes complete sense to have multiple lovers that you can get multiple needs met from. And I have a problem with that for, for a couple of different reasons. 
the first one is that of course you can't get everything from your monogamous partner but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to have multiple lovers to get the other things met like I saw someone on online dating once who was like my partner you know is quite introverted and doesn't you know want to go out to gigs and stuff with me so I'm looking for someone who wants to do that and I was just like well you couldn't do that with your friends like I think the reason why you want a partner to do that is because you feel like you can put obligations on a partner in the way that you can't do with friends and that is problematic like that's my reading of this like for me I don't think it's why I'm polyamorous I think it's why I'm not monogamous yeah so and it goes back to that freedom thing like for me you know it's not like I'm in constant pursuit of new partners like sometimes I you know date a lot because it's fun to meet new people and to explore new aspects of myself but it's more that if I meet someone it's nice to be able to explore that you know if I was monogamous I wouldn't be able to I would meet this person who I thought was amazing and I would have and this happens to monogamous people right and the choice you have to do there is make a choice to not explore that and people deal with that in different ways and for me it's that freedom to allow whatever the connection is to grow in its own way and there may still be restraints on that because you know as you very well encapsulated at the start of this the restrictions are often logistical and time like it's it's a cliche but you know love may be infinite but time definitely isn't and you have to think about well I I have two partners who I really enjoy spending time with and there's only so much, you know, when I have a busy job and hobbies and time for myself, which is important. And, you know, I don't have space to start seeing someone else regularly. But it is great and it would be nice to see each other again. Um, speaking of, sort of making relationships work, what is the motivation for you now, now that you've gone from a monogamous relationship? Like, what is it that keeps you going, like, when you, ha- when you have difficult patches? I mean, I know, I'm sure you can answer love or whatever, uh, but I'm sure it's, like, a bit more than that. Um, what does commitment feel like now to you? And what what is the motivation to keep things working? Yeah, I mean, I think motivation is because you, you treasure the relationship and you want it to continue. Like, that's it. That, that is literally it. Like, there's... You know, I I love this person. I like spending time with them. We've hit a bumpy patch, but let's see if we can figure it out. I mean, I think for me, I stayed in a bad relationship for too long, partly because I didn't think anyone else would want me. You know, I kind of, and, and I felt like, well, you know, relationships are sometimes bad. Like, you know, every relationship has difficult patches. And I think that's, that question of trying to work out like this bad thing that's happening, is it something that we should fix or is it you know a reason to end the relationship is always a question whether you're monogamous or polyamorous. And actually in a way within polyamory, it is easier to let things slide in a way because you maybe aren't seeing each other as often. And so for example, I um, have been, had been seeing someone since January and it had been a really nice relationship that was very easy and was never like, you know, I think I had said fairly on both both to her and also to other people that it was very clear to me that we were never going to be like the loves of each other's lives. You know, we were two people who really got on well and there was like an, a, a nice sexual connection that ultimately just didn't sustain. And we kind of drifted and hadn't seen each other for a while and it was hard to know whether to end it because the relationship doesn't have to take a certain form. So if you're not seeing each other regularly, does that matter? Like, and so knowing when to end it can be actually can be almost harder because, you know, and I think if it had been a monogamous relationship, it would have ended like months ago, but because it was not, it was kind of easy to be like, well, you know. I fancy seeing you this weekend or not. Yeah, and just because we can see each other for six months doesn't mean it has to become something now. You know, that that sort of... I've had a few relationships end that way where it's got to six months and the other person who in both cases were, like, newer to polyamory than I was, sort of feeling like, well, now we've hit this, like, watermark. Surely it must be something. And I think, you know, my response to that is, well, it doesn't have to be anything in particular. But I think for me, something that's important is feeling like someone wants to spend time with me. Like, it doesn't... It doesn't have to be every week or every other week, but ultimately, like, they want to they want to hang out 
even even if it's you know we've only got time every six weeks but I'm really looking forward to this time that we have and that's what was kind of I felt was missing um and I'm sad because we had really good sex right it was you know it was it was really good and had kind of tapered off and become a bit more complicated but I there was a bit of me that was like maybe it will come back I don't want to lose that but we sat down and had a conversation and we were both in the same place and it was you know a very healthy good discussion and I think definitely the right decision and you know maybe because of the polyamory and it not having the pressure to be like is this the perfect relationship maybe that helped us end it better it sounds like you have a lot more honest conversations obviously with a lot more people and you're able to have that emotional kind of um connection and openness and you talked here yeah, at the beginning of the call like about how much you've learned about yourself like what are the main things you've learned about yourself that have surprised you or that you've kind of always kind of known but you've been able to confront more I mean I think some of the uncomfortable things I've had to confront have been my tendency to be passive aggressive like to fall into negative relationship patterns that I bring with me from my long-term relationship it's not something I like about myself and it makes me quite uncomfortable I think it's really highlighted my insecurities a lot more like I think it's really like brought home to me yeah, how insecure I am about my own self-worth, um, which comes in part from my previous relation, monogamous relationship, but also a lot I've realised through therapy. Parentship, probably. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And, and that's actually been quite hard to, like, to, to sort of sort through because I'm very close to my mum and it has affected my relationship with her, sort of realising that it hasn't always been that healthy. Um, and has also made me like uncomfortably reflect on that monogamous relationship because he found my relationship with my mom difficult and pointed it out and I was always very protective of, of her and defensive even at the same time acknowledging that she's difficult but um, she can never listen to this podcast um, <laughs> but it's so crazy how we how, it's so crazy how we can't do that in the moment and it all depends on our relationship with the person who's telling us as well. Like, I think there's so much my ex-husband would have known and seen about me that I was just like, la, 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 la. Um, and it, it, I don't know what it is. It was, it was hard for me to hear it from my ex just because they were very similar. So a lot of what he was criticising her for, he also did. Like, you know, that, that pattern of interaction replicated. So, you know, this is why it's hard for me to unpick it because it's basically, like, been my you know, close intimate relationships for my whole adult life. So, you know, I kind of got to like my mid thirties and I'm having to like unpack it all. It's, you know, it's hard to expect someone to do that work for you. Like you can be in a good relationship and still find things challenging. And yeah, it's only recently that I've really felt brave enough to like open that box properly in therapy. And it's, it's been really hard. Yeah. Mother daughter stuff is just mental. Like I don't think anyone, I like, you know, when you watch it, I watched Bridget Jones, what, when I was 12, 14, can't remember. And you see it, but you're like, Oh, that, that mother's weird. And then you grow up and you're like, Oh, there's a reason girls talk about their mothers in this way, because it's just, it's every single person has something to some varying degree. Um, I think it's almost like, is it just meant to be inherently, a bit messed up mother-daughter relationships there's weird, weird competition element there's the control they see themselves in us like just just by virtue of the fact they're our mothers I don't and like and they have to work really hard to just not do that I mean also so no I, I just realized that I didn't properly answer your question about commitment and I don't know if you want me to do that now or but we'll, we'll, we'll stick with this because also I actually wanted to ask you we'll go back to commitment a bit um but yeah what have you learned about yourself that's good Amanda not just the insecurities like what things are you like celebrating about yourself now that maybe you didn't celebrate before I think I think I, I struggle to to celebrate myself um and I think the the things that I'm trying to accept about myself are that I can be quite I can be kind and I can be generous um and empathetic like I think um I think these are things that are that I try you know that I try to be yeah I mean sort of on the commitment thing a little bit um I mean the I mean we kind of have this in our 30s anyway as grown-ass women but is there any kind of mourning of the happy ever after the one person for the rest of your life um I know you've sort of never really necessarily believed in that anyway 
Um, has there been any kind of mindset adjustment where you're like, uh, you're not looking for your fucking Prince Charming anymore? For me, I feel like I have that every day <laughs> as like a woman. Like maybe, they, oh no, I've got a man. Uh, maybe, no, I've got a man. Like just this, just because of the fairy tales and the bullshit. But you, you, you're shaking your head. You've never sort of had that. No, I mean, I think there's there's something in me that quite enjoys being subversive. Like, I think there's a bit of me that just enjoys the, like, sort of shock value. Um, like, just before we started this call, I was having a chat with a friend of mine who doesn't really get it. She doesn't really get my life. And there is a very naughty bit of me that kind of enjoys messing with her mind a little bit. <laughs> is this the good and kind side of you? I think it's because she's very set in how she sees the world. And kind of like is not very, I suppose not very kind back. Not that she's mean, but her her attitudes towards, you know, over the last few years when I've told her about my relationships has been a little abrasive or a little, not directly judgmental, but maybe there's something underneath it. And yeah, I just, you know, I I can't remember how it came up. Oh, because she's, she's recently single and, you know, we were just talking about dating and sex and I was just saying like this new connection which has been good I was at this festival this weekend and with my partner and his other partner someone else who I've just started seeing someone else who I had an extremely intense connection with that ended in a really like way that was emotionally challenging for me who then slept with the person who I've just started seeing (laughs) and you know my partner was you know there were like you know multiple people who he's dated and things have ended in complicated ways for him um you know I was sort of sort of outlining some of this and you know, there's a part of me that's like quite enjoys being able to say that you know it's a little bit childish the impulse but I think also yeah kind of I don't really want a boring normal life like I quite I quite like the fact that my life is a little complex and challenging and I quite enjoy I think the intellectual challenge of of working all that stuff through and so yeah, I don't think I have a mourning for it because I don't think I ever aspired to it. I think what I always wanted was what I have now. I always wanted something that was a little bit different. And I think I sort of pushed myself to fit into a box. You know, I thought like, that's what I should do. Like, you know, we started, me and my ex, we started dating and, you know, it wasn't a super normal relationship anyway, because we weren't in the same place a lot of the time. And then there sort of came a point where we'd been together for maybe like 10 years or so. Where I was kind of like, well, you know, I guess we should probably do the like marriage and baby thing. Um, you know, he was going to move to to Leeds and we were going to buy a house and we were trying to have a baby and, you know, and there was just, and then, and then I think the moment which I sort of, you know, snapped out of it and really like all this happened very, you know, without, I wasn't doing it intentionally. I wasn't doing it consciously and really thinking about it and discussing and thinking about what I wanted. I was doing it because it just like, well, no one else is going to love me. So I guess this is the thing I do now. And, you know, I, it was um, in February 2019, I got pregnant eventually after a really long time of trying, like a, a year and a half of trying, and had a very early miscarriage, which I was very sad about initially. But then I think the more I reflected on it, and then we sort of started going through fertility treatment. And that was a real like having that, that was the first time I had to be intentional about it. I was actually having to make some decisions about making something happen. And when I was forced to do that, I was just like, oh, God, no, like, this isn't, this isn't what I want. To, why am I doing this? Like, I don't really want to have a baby. I definitely don't want to have a baby with this person because we argue all the time. This is not a good relationship. And I, I need out. And I think once I realized that, you know, it took me quite a long time to actually end it. But once once the thought was in my head, I just couldn't get rid of it. I just, like, I wanted out immediately. And I felt I felt an obligation to try and make it work because it had been such a long time, but actually like, I just wanted to run away. So I think rather than a grief, I feel a relief actually. Like I feel, I feel extremely grateful that I escaped actually. And, you know, sometimes I want to just like skip when I'm walking down the road because I'm just like, I have to sort of pinch myself and be like, this, this is my life now. You know, like, this is great. I get to, you know, that, that ridiculous scenario that I outlined gives me a lot of happiness like seeing seeing my partner with seeing my partner with this person who he was so intensely or is still intensely in love with you know it was such an intense relationship that ended in a way that completely broke his heart but they have 
together the two of them have kind of still managed to foster this really beautiful friendship and they connect in such a unique way and seeing that was just beautiful like I just there's there's a, a polyamory has all this like vocabulary that kind of sounds a bit ridiculous but when you think about it it's trying to describe stuff that doesn't actually exist so there's this word compersion which is very specifically that joy that you get in seeing your partner in love with someone else I think we all understand this feeling because we experience it in other ways you know when you see a friend achieve something that maybe you also want to achieve like promotion or something but you feel all you feel is happiness for them I think we all understand it in a way I have it with exes I think I have it I have it with some exes yeah I feel like it's the opposite of schadenfreude yeah so I think I think that's very beautiful and I really like I feel very grateful to be in a place where I can feel that joy um so yeah I think it's the exact opposite of feeling like a grief of I've lost something I just feel a like a real happiness and a gratefulness that, you know, I think maybe I feel some regret that it took me so long to get to this place. Can't go there. We can't do that. <laughs> no, and I, I, I've made my peace with it. But I think especially in the earlier years of this, I was just like, why the fuck did I not do this? When I sort of started thinking about it when I was like 28, 29, or even actually, you know, we sort of, we almost broke up completely in, in 2011. Like, why did I not do it then? Like, that was the time when I should have done it, just before I started my PhD and, like, had all this space. And instead, I, like, doubled down on it because I made this, again, this other time that I made this very conscious decision to, like, stay in that relationship and then felt this obligation to, like, make it work. If you're not ready, you're not ready. And you know when you're ready with these things. I think there are loads of... We all have those relationships um, and past relationships. And it's like, you're just not ready. Like, it will... So I was gonna say I think I I think I was ready I think I should have done it then in in some ways in some ways not because there were also some really nice times that happened in those years afterwards but I think I think also we caused a lot of damage to each other in those eight years subsequent and I think actually like I yeah I mean I know what you mean by not ready but I think the reason why I wasn't ready was because of a lot of like social messages that I had received about both myself and what relationships should be. Yeah, there's fear and there's pressure. Yeah. Yeah. And I wish, I think I don't always live the radicalness that I feel. And I think I definitely feel that about the, about my relationships, that the way I felt about the world was not how I was living. And I, I feel frustrated with myself a little bit for not doing that, but maybe, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe I just wasn't ready no, I think that's extremely relatable. Like everyone, um, I mean, I think we all, probably even now, there's still parts of you will be like, oh, I'm not quite doing the the big thing, but you've got so fewer barriers around you. Um, and 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 yes, yeah, and I, I do think the whole, if you can remove the marriage and kids expectation from your life, it's so fucking freeing, especially for um, for women. Yeah, and I think, you know, some people are much more able to push against against that from a younger age like yeah I have so much respect for you know a lot of the people who I've met over the last few years who like are really radical in their left-wing politics and really do it as well like they really live that life and you know and I feel I feel inadequate a lot of the time actually that I haven't you know I feel so much I still feel so much restriction from my upbringing and pushing against you know I, I, I fear my my parents especially my mother's disapproval too much to do some of the things that I really would have liked to have done um and I'm sort of learning to unpick that now I'm sort of having a second adolescence really I'm I'm I'm, I'm having a midlife crisis really <laughs> well no how are you um how are you sort of building yourself up again and making peace with that stuff really you know how obviously there's a balance between knowing what you can fix and what you just go okay well this is me and that's fine and it might change yeah how are you sort of building yourself up now therapy I mean a lot of this a lot of the work that I'm doing is still kind of figuring it out and figuring out like what is going on um I think a lot of it's about self-compassion like I'm I'm my own worst critic like I mean I did it in this interview right you asked me like what things I'd learned about myself and it was all negative um I you know I find it really hard to to think about the good things I mean when when Tom and I started dating like if he said something nice to me like I would cry and to the point where he was like do you do you want me to like stop saying nice things like I'm, I don't want to upset you and I was like 
No, it's really nice to hear them. It's just also really hard to accept them. And I promise eventually I'll stop crying. Um, and, you know, it is. It's it's just difficult to to take in in the compliment and the flattery and to, like, you know, to really internalise it and really believe it, um, you know, which I've learned is a classic um, anxious attachment, like, hallmark. Again, it's an ADHD thing, so a very good video about the whole um, knowing stuff and just not like there's a disconnect between that part of your brain and this part of your brain and connecting the bit that knows stuff and into practice and being like, oh, no, I can do this. And you just like that thing of, of I mean, it's a slightly different thing, but yeah, believing what you sort of know logically. I think with neurodiv- any neurodivergence, like you, you've described it as having a biological root, but I think there's probably also a social root as well, you know, like you spend you spend your whole childhood growing up in an environment, you know, like I, I don't have a classic ADHD childhood in the sense, well, and neither do you actually, from what I know about you in the sense of we were both academically very focused and well behaved. And, um, but you know, you spend your whole childhood, like trying to fit and kind of often being aware that you are not quite doing the right things and you're having to work quite hard to fit in to like not be seen as lazy, for example, um and I'm working really hard for that and yeah my I mean my school reports are all full of like you know Amanda Amanda's a very able student she just needs to believe in herself like it's right there like you know from age 11 onwards um you know and I was like winning you know school you know form prizes for getting highest marks in my exams and yet still you know convinced that I wasn't that smart and then and then you know when we came to GCSEs loads of people did better than me and I was like aha see I wasn't really that smart after all um, when actually I was just I was just quite burnt out actually was the reality of it of trying to like maintain this standard and yeah it's it's something that is it's hard to work work against and yeah I mean we'll we'll see where the therapy goes I kind of only just really admitted a lot of this stuff and I, I, I actually said to my therapist like you know this is great but now I don't know what to do about it like it's great I've worked out what's going on but now what do I do and she's like well that's the next stage you know we'll, we'll keep on talking basically and work things out it's 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 always fascinating to me parts of us ourselves that we cannot face even if we think we're facing them like you know the the deepest darkest secrets we have which I'm sure there aren't many between uh, between us um uh, you know it's those sort of conversations you'll have with your friend at midnight and you'll be like never like forget about this the next day and how hard it is to challenge yourself and because you have to, it just requires, it's not just changing your life necessarily, it's just you're challenging everything you've thought, challenging relationships and challenging love as well, especially with the parental relationships. I mean, I started questioning my parental relationships fairly early on, which I don't know if it's actually helped me in any way, to be honest. Working out like the, the negative influence, I don't know if that's the right phrase, you know, that my mum has had in my life has been like quite a painful thing to realize and I think has been a little damaging towards our relationship because it's not something I can talk to her about like I can't sit down and say I've learned this thing can we talk about it and think about how we repair our relationship or change our relationship going forward like she can't have that conversation so it's something I'm having to like sit with and that's like that's really difficult you know she didn't respond well at all to me telling her like I decided this summer to tell her about both my parents, in fact, about my sexuality, like my sexual orientation and my relationship style. And she really, like, she found that conversation really hard. And, like, I found it, like, I also didn't, like, pick the best time because I knew it would be a difficult conversation. I was nervous about having it. She was a bit blindsided, didn't respond well. Like, it was a really difficult conversation and we've just not, we've not mentioned it again. You know, whereas my dad was, you know, had a completely different response to it and, it's hard not to compare them, but yeah, it's it's really challenging when when you have a relationship with someone who's not good at having those serious, open emotional conversations. And that's um, the case for a lot of people and a lot of parents. And I just think it's that, you know, I know lots of people with parents like that. And only some of them are now saying, are actually doing therapy and pointing out things that I've kind of seen, but you can't say anything when you're an outsider seeing it. 
but uh, but also plenty of people who will never get the th- therapy for it and it's they don't see it as a problem in their lives it's like that's just who my mum and dad is and and that's how I deal with them and I will and and I, I don't necessarily think I mean I do think one way is I prefer one way which is the sort of understanding you know I'm I naturally want everyone to dig deep and understand themselves. But at the same time, where does that get me? Because <laughs> sometimes I'm like, okay, well, now I know everything and I've d- dug deep and now I feel hopeless. Whereas other people go, no, we don't do this and we get on with our lives and we're not depressed. And We might kill ourselves at 60, but we're not depressed now. So, um, Yeah, no, but I think I think that's true. I think you can. My mum is that person. You know, she puts things to one side and ignores it. But, but the problem with that is that it's not like the issues go away. And it means that everyone else in her life has to do the emotional labor for her that she's refusing to do for herself. So we, you know, everyone has a box of things that they don't want to look at. And if you refuse to, and everyone knows what's in that, everyone else knows what's in that box as well. And if you refuse to do the work to deal with those things in the box, everyone else is having to do it for you. You know, that's, that's the classic, like difficult mother, you know, trying to appease all the relationships. And I think, um, you know, it's what you're saying of like, well, how does it help to know what's in the box? Like now I've really worked it out and understood, or rather, you know what's in the box, but now you know why they're in the box, but you have more work to do. I think that's the thing, like, and it's hard because therapy is expensive and, but like really you have to keep going until you make peace with what's in the box. And that's, that's way more challenging. Um, but similarly, it's why therapy is, is important because someone telling you is not the same as you truly understanding it and really internalizing that understanding. And I think that's why it's really important that they come to it themselves because it's about discovering that for yourself rather than being told. And so many of the problems that we have are about not having autonomy or ownership over the decisions and the feelings that we're having. And so, you know, you know that's why we need a government that takes mental health seriously and funds it properly. Thank you so much for listening to the noisy hadger podcast i hope you enjoyed this episode with amanda next time i'll be speaking to jess in piazzi in the meantime have a wonderful week Bye.